Welcome to Tech Leaders Hub, where we interview technical managers to ask them about their winning strategies, lessons learned, and actionable advice for other leaders. I'm your host, Jakub Greitzar. Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome to Tech Leaders Hub FinTech episode number four. My guest today is Andy Beacock from Canopy, head of engineering. Andy, how are you doing today? I'm doing really good. Thank you, Kuba. How are you? I'm amazingly excited about this. I just had, <laughs> you know, just such a nice chat warming up before going live. I'm, I'm so glad we can already be live for, for our Tech Leaders Hub audience. In the meantime, Andy, um, who do you hope will be joining us today? What will they get from the conversation? Yeah, I, th- I think the best audience is sort of tech leaders, engineering managers, heads of tech. Um, and what I'm hoping they're going to get out of this is a little bit of an understanding around open banking um, and, and how we're using it at Canopy and maybe how they could use it if you're in the fintech space. And then yeah. also a little bit around, um, you know, maybe getting on to kind of managing offshore teams and working with offshore teams. Exactly. Yeah, I was talking with people around the office uh, just the other day about this session and they said, oh, it's the one about open banking, isn't it? So I suppose that kind of stuck out from our messaging about the session. We'll definitely get to open banking. But first, I want to do something that is traditional on our live streams. People are joining in uh, early. They should get value from the very start. So Andy, my traditional question to all Tech Leaders Hub guests is, what is your number one tip for tech leaders? Okay, I don't think this one's been covered before, but apologies if it has. For me, it's around making sure that as a tech leader, you build your own personal brand um, and you know, you're putting yourself out there on various social platforms so that people get to know you, get to understand what you're doing. Um, it's really good personally. You, know, you get invited to do things like this, which is great. Uh, it's also good for the company that you work for or that you're representing because, you know, again, um, it's sort of bringing attention to the company. Mine, in, effect, in particular, is canopy.rent. And um, the other thing as well with a personal brand, by putting yourself out there, you attract talent. You know, recruitment is one of the hardest things these days, especially in tech. Um, it's so hard to find good people, so hard to attract good people. Um, so, you know, getting a personal brand and being out there is one way that actually people come to find you and say, I'd like to work for you. I like how you talk. I like what you talk about. I want to be part of the company that you work for. So that's my tip is around building that personal brand. Exactly, exactly. I can tell you we haven't had that tip before, so thank you for sharing it. And yeah, I keep just I just keep thinking about the unexpected virtues of content and you know, and and like you said, personal branding. We've been doing these sessions for a while and every time I get something extra, you know, something more like, you know, a, a connection, somebody who can help me with something, you know, totally even unrelated to my work. So I can absolutely agree that it's, it's great to, uh, to do that. A follow-up question. If you were to start building your personal brand, some people are watching this probably, you know, with, starting at zero, where and how would you start? I think key thing is to decide sort of what your, what your topic is going to be or how do you want to put yourself out there? Um, and then picking a social media platform that you're comfortable with. So um, I do a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. I do have a Twitter account. I put some things on Twitter, but predominantly it's LinkedIn. And it's, you know, if you just want to get started, find some articles, follow some people that are interesting in the space that you're into and start commenting and liking on their posts. And then maybe start sharing some posts with your own insight. And then after a while, you can start to write your own posts. And then if you wish, your own actual articles or blog entries as such. Um, A lot of people think that they've got to write pages and pages and be a world expert before they can start putting themselves out there. But you don't. You just just get involved with other people and just start talking. And, you know, in the end, people will probably like what you say and invite you on to various webinars or to to collaborate in other areas. But, yeah, just start small, but just start and get out there. Exactly. I, I would totally agree with that. I think, you know, starting out, just to add my two cents here, I'm also trying to do a little bit on LinkedIn in terms of personal branding. Don't focus too much on, at least in my experience, don't focus too much on followers, hundreds of followers, thousands of followers. Just make two, three friends, you know, make sure you, you know, go, you go into their content, they're going to go into yours and just build from there. You know, deeper relationships can mean much more. These are social platforms at the end of the day. 
Uh, but anyway, uh, thank you for that tip. Very nice. It's going to make for a great clip afterwards on, on our LinkedIn page, incidentally, uh, a little bit later. Uh, for now, for those people who are joining in who don't maybe don't know you personally that much, they haven't seen your posts yet, could you do a, just a very brief intro of you know where you are right now? What does Canopy do? What is your role there? Yeah, sure. So I've been uh, in software engineering for just over 25 years worked at a number of different companies, some large worked at Nokia when they were the world's number one with 60,000 employees. My very first company I worked at, there was four of us, including the managing director. So I've worked in tiny companies and massive ones um, and in different spaces as well. I've done some telecoms, I've done some financial stuff. And now I, at the moment, I am the head of engineering at Canopy. Our website is canopy.rent and we are a platform that is there to improve the lives of the renters um, and people who are in the rental and letting space, making them as, you know, in, enabling them to actually get the property that they want to rent. Um, we have a um, our system, we have a rent passport, where basically as a renter, you can prepare a passport ahead of time. You can hook up with open banking, and we'll go into that later, but you hook up your bank account with us, um, you verify, allow us to do a credit check with you. You provide some income, some employment information, and we build basically a rent passport that says you are a good renter. You pay your rent on time every month. Um, your previous landlords say you're excellent, and therefore we give you a great score. And then, in effect, when you go to rent a property with uh, a letting agent who uses our system and our platform, um, you will then appear as a great renter and hopefully secure the, the ideal rental property that you, you were after. So we're just trying to make life as easy for the renter as possible. We offer a number of other tools and services and products and stuff, but our core offering is around building that rent passport and making life uh, as easy as possible for the renter. Yeah, when I was researching this, one thing that struck me is how you help people, you know, build a credit score, even without having to take out any loans, right? Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure, yeah. So normally, especially sort of in the UK, and I think into Europe as well, um, you generally have to be a homeowner. So you have a mortgage, um, mm. or have various credit cards. So that as you spend money with these with the credit agencies, as you pay your mortgage, and as you put money in your bank, um, those companies report to the credit agencies such as Experian or Equifax to say, yes, every month uh, Andy is paying his mortgage and he's paying his credit card bill and that builds your credit score. But if, you, if you're a renter, you're paying, especially in London, you're paying a very large amount of money every month uh, in rent, but it doesn't get tracked. It doesn't get reported. So that sort of commitment to a regular large payment is not actually of any benefit. So what we do is we actually track that. We track your rent for you through our rent tracking system. And we then report that to the credit agencies um, on your behalf, which actually starts to build your credit profile. So for people who have maybe just moved to the UK or they're a stu or student or newly qualified student, they really won't have much of a credit file or a credit score. True. Yeah. And this allows them to start building that score straight away a month on month. Um, we're building that score for them and with them as well. So that's another aspect. It's kind of how, you know, we, we kind of have this term rental health and it's around trying to oh. figure out how can you as a renter with your finances actually be, be beneficial to you in the long term. Yeah, that, that sounds like very clear value of what you're doing just you know, from for me sitting here. Uh, I want to get into open banking and you know how that enables all of what you just said. But before that, I wanted to ask you on a more personal note. We're, we're going to be talking a lot about fintech and you know it sounds like you had a pretty diverse history before that. You're actually the second guest in a row that we're having who worked at Nokia, which is interesting. Uh, I wanted to ask you though, uh, why did you decide on like a personal level to go into fintech specifically? Um, so I started out, my first company I worked at was in uh, sort of software security. Uh, in those days, it was actual physical pieces of hardware plugged into the back of PCs so that you couldn't oh. copy the floppy disks of the software. I'm giving my I'm giving my age away now, but um, <laughs> uh, so it started. I think off I saw my mom using that once. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. 
Um, so it started off in security. Then I moved into telecoms. So I worked on voicemail platforms and systems like that. That then secured me a role at Nokia. I was working on the multimedia messaging servers and the back-end parts all to do with MMS messages um, and picture messages and the kind of the birth of the mobile internet. I was involved in, in that aspect with lots of wow. technologies that now we no longer use and have been assigned to the dustbin because everything's moved forward so far. But True. And then after about 10 plus years in telecoms, I was just getting a little bit bored. I'd kind of done done a lot of the stuff the same. So I decided to, ch I thought, right, I love software, love software engineering. And then one of the benefits of software engineering, you can just change industry. You can just change like the, the actual field you're in. So I moved to a life assurance company uh, and worked there for 12 years, um, web enabling all of their backend systems to push the push the control into the client's hands rather than it being paper sent into head office. And again, after 12 years, I'm, I thought I've done life assurance now. I kind of know it. It's getting a little bit boring and I wanted to find a new space. So I was looking around and fintech and insure tech and prop tech is all kind of like real, you know, upcoming areas. And True. Canopy were looking for a head of engineering to help them move into the scale-up phase. And it just seemed a really, really good fit. So, um, yeah, so I joined Canopy um, um, because they're in the fintech space. Okay, and the rest of it is history, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, let, let's dive into that then. Let's dive into open banking and, you know, how that relates to what Canopy does. Uh, with regards to Tech Leaders Hub Fintech, this is the first time that we're going a little bit deeper into open banking. So I thought I would give you the privilege of actually explaining open banking in brief to our listeners who maybe are not so well versed in it. And then we'll go into open banking plus X, which, you know, uh, something that we talked about a little bit mm. earlier that I would love for you to kind of unpack and, you know, to show our watchers and listeners what the space is like right now. So open banking, go. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you're in fintech, then it's all about finance, right? It's all about people's money, financial aspects. Um one of the key underlying technology aspects in the fintech space is around open banking. So open banking is the ability for a third party to securely access your bank account information under the consent and permission from yourself. And we are then able to extract the transactional information for a period of time, maybe six months or a year. And then we can use that data whilst you continue to give us permission. We can use that data for whatever purpose that we're, we're offering. So um, what we do at Canopy is we say, please, will you trust us with um, a year or two years worth of your data? For that, we will enable you to track your rent to the credit agencies to build your credit score. Um, we have some budgeting tools where we can look through how you spend your money and then advise you that actually you spend a lot of money on in these areas, whether it's travel or food or holidays. And, you know, if you if you altered that slightly, then your savings would increase dramatically. And then that would also affect your affordability for when you go to another property. So yeah. now open banking is regulated in the UK and across Europe. It's regulated by various banks and authorities. So it's a re regulated industry. And. It's kind of called open banking because it uses open APIs. So that's where the open bit comes from as well. So not only are you being open with your data, it's using open APIs to actually get your data. So we don't receive a statement like a PDF or a paper statement from your bank. We get a stream of information via an API through an open banking provider. There's a number of different ones. Stripe, Plaid, Tink are just some that spring to mind. There's lots of open banking providers which actually connect to individual banks mm -hmm. and they make the they provide a common interface for people like ourselves. So we don't need to integrate with HSBC and Royal Bank of Scotland and, um, you know, Capital One. We just integrate with an open banking provider and they give us the data in a common format. So that's kind of open banking in a nutshell. Uh, mm -hmm. The because it's sensitive information and it's your information, every 90 days, you need to 
we, we need to ask you, are you happy for us to continue accessing your bank information? And you need to give explicit consent to that. And if you say, no, you're not happy, then we wipe our system and the connection to the bank is gone. Um, or at any time you can choose, no, I don't, I no longer want to associate my bank with that provider. And again, they have to respect your privacy. So it's, um, it, it's a lot of personal information you're giving, but you also have control over who has it, who has access to it. So that's the kind, that's, that's a basic bit around open banking. Does that make sense? Do you want me to expand on any of those areas? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And to me, it has this kind of emotional level to it in the sense that, you know, you're putting yourself out there with open banking, aren't you? You're sharing your financial information, you know, with this uh, fintech, uh, for example, like, like Canopy. And, you know, the, the topic we want to revolve around today is kind of being worthy of that level of access and basically being worthy of that consent every 90 days. Uh, so I wanted to get a little bit into that. Let's just go ahead and jump into it. Before we go open banking plus X, can you say, you know, what do you do to get that consent, uh, you know, consistently and what other fintechs can do? Because I assume they're going to be watching as well. You know, what's the mindset that they should have? What's the approach that they should have to do it right and to actually be worthy of this data? Yeah. Okay. So I think a, cu a couple of points spring to mind. Point number one is you need to ensure you need to somehow instill a sense of trust in your product. Sure. You know, um, whether it's how you phrase what your product does, whether it's the terms and conditions or your privacy policies that you have in place, so that you're presenting to the customer that they can trust you, that you're they're going to be confident that you'll look after their data in a safe and efficient way. And I think that's the first thing. How do you instill that sense of trust and you know, part of it is around having a good brand. It's around having an established brand as well. Um, but also, like, moving on to the next point is around you need a compelling idea, a compelling product. For, for someone to trust you with all that information, what are you going to give them back? Right. Like, if you're just going to give them back recommendations for films based on no information at all from the banking, why would I give you that information? So, True. you know, it's we're we're directly tying you give us your bank information which is valuable to you we will boost your credit score and offer you sort of uh, budgeting insights and financial insights and financial tools using that data and that's that's the return that you're going to get so mm -hmm. i think as a fintech if you're thinking okay we can use open banking to build a product but we don't know what we're going to build um First of all, you shouldn't really go into a space thinking, well, we'll be a fintech. What should we build? You should have an idea first. But sure, yeah. if that is the case, well, it needs to be valuable and compelling to that user. And they need to see a direct correlation between their bank account information and the value they're going to get from your offering in the market. Okay. So it sounds like a lot of it is around communication. Some of it is about branding. I feel like a little bit of it might be around, you know, also maybe an element of storytelling. I wonder, you know, with regards to what you're doing on the engineering side, what are like the specific steps that you're taking here to, you know, to also kind of boost this trustworthiness of Canopy in the eyes of people? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it obviously is, you know, uh, data encryption over secure communication paths so that you know any information in transit is secured encryption at rest when it's in our database um, solid mechanisms for how we remove that information from our platform as well um, you also need a safe platform execution environment um, at canopy we run on aws so that kind of inherently gives us some protection and then we have additional security layers around that um, if you're running more of a traditional data center, then how are you going to make sure that your servers and that information is secure from that point? Mm -hmm. So there's that kind of security. But then going back, yeah, part of it is around the messaging. It's, mm -hmm. you know, sort of we're going to we we respect your information and we respect your data and we're going to treat it carefully and we're going to treat it with respect. Um, so that that's kind of how we've gone at Canopy in that area. Yeah, 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 I hear that. So now I'm curious about how that ties into the open banking plus X concept. We explained the concept in general, uh, but 
I would like to hear about your thoughts about kind of the general landscape of open banking solutions. You know, you're researching this, what, what are you going to find and what is open banking plus X? Let's demystify that finally. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I kind of lay, I, I've just kind of labeled it open banking plus X because the, the plus X, you, there are some providers that purely give you open banking capability. So, um, you know, we, we, you sign an agreement with this open banking provider and when you redirect the user to their system, it hooks their bank account up and you get the transactions. So that's basic open banking. And there's some providers that do just that and they really focus on just doing that really well with a load of banks. But then you get another layer of open banking provider, which is like open banking plus an additional service as part mm -hmm. of the bundle. So um, a more basic one of that is around transaction categorization. So often, so, okay, um, in the UK, we have a supermarket called Tesco, we have Sainsbury's, we have Morrison's. Um, they would be, if you go with an open banking plus categorization system, they would then be labeling those as groceries. Mm -hmm. And if it's petrol stations and fuel stations, then that would be labeled as, you know, um, petrol or automotive fuel. So you can start to take a view on the data slightly level up because you now start to know, you've automatically had those transactions labeled in particular categories, which then allows you to start to take a view on, you know, how does that person overall spend their money or, you know, how much do they spend on groceries? Mm -hmm. So there's that, that's kind of an additional plus service, which, which most open banking providers offer, but not all. Yes. Then and that ties into, get... sorry, that ties into what you said earlier, right? That, you know, you identify which categories a person is spending in the most, and then you can give them some tips like, you know, groceries was a lot of money. Maybe you could look at that or, you know, gas was a lot of money. Maybe you could have a look at that and increase your affordability, like you said. Yeah, exactly. You know, a, a, a simple budgeting tool. If you go with an open banking provider who also offers transaction categorization, you could show a nice pie chart of how someone spends their money in, you know, transportation, groceries, entertainment, um, uh, accommodation, and you could very quickly build a system that showed how someone spent their money. Um, another plus X, some companies do affordability. So they will, they will do more deeper analysis on the transactions before you, they're sent to someone like Canopy. They would do some deeper analysis on those um, financial transactions and start to go, OK, I can see the income. I can see the expenditure and then I can see whether it's in positive or negative cash flow each month. Mm -hmm. And then that allows, you know, that allows you to make different decisions as a end product and a fintech product at the end based on affordability. Um, another one is liability. Some companies take a look at your spend to try and figure out how much of an insurance risk or insurance non-risk are you? Yeah. So yeah. would you be a good person to target for some um, contents insurance or vehicle insurance type cover? Or are you somebody who actually you'd end up with a very high premium because you're kind of high risk? So mm -hmm. there's some uh, like liability calculations that are provided by some companies. And then one of the bits that we're actually building, which we have built, which is kind of more of our own plus X on top of the mm -hmm. open banking, is um, around sort of a user's propensity or their spending habits. So not just categorization, but actually taking a look at what are the predominant spends. So mm -hmm. if you spent a lot of money um, on petrol and other automotive expenses we might label you as a bit of a a bit of a motorist um, or if you spent a lot of money going to restaurants and purchasing food in high-end supermarkets and delicatessens we might label you as a foodie um, and so we've kind of got a layer that goes on top of the categorization to start to break down what type of user you are so okay. that that's that's what I call kind of open banking plus X. It's the raw transactions plus some kind of capability. And you can either buy them in by going to a provider or if you wish. And if you want to make it your own IP, you can actually build it yourself. And then that's kind of your own plus X. Yeah. I'm curious what you just mentioned at the end there, this open banking plus 
spending habits and what that says about you as a person. How could that then be used like down the line? You know, you could use this information. Do do you somehow use it in your calculations or does it somehow, you know, or could it figure into other types of products here? I just, I'm trying to picture where that might be useful. Yeah. Okay. So um, as part of our offering to the renter, we also have um, a, an offers section or a marketplace. So we have selected third parties where we have, um, an affiliation with where um, we've got some utility switching providers, um, television and broadband providers. Um, we've got sort of point of move services. So um, people who will basically come and pack up your apartment, put it in a van and drive it to the new place, cleaning services, et cetera. So we have kind of like a set of, a set of um, things that you might want to purchase as a renter, either when you're moving or once you've moved in and they're kind of a longer term thing, including some insurance products as well. Um, at the moment, that marketplace is kind of a dumb marketplace. It just offers a bunch of products. Uh -huh. But our plan is to take our, our propensity spending habits and then use that knowledge to help identify maybe stuff that you would be interested in. So, you know, um, one of the things we have is bike insurance. So if we spotted that you spent a lot of money at various places that sell um, bicycles, we might then send you an advert or a, a sort of a, a message that says, are you interested in bike insurance? You know, you, I don't know if you've got this or not, but this, uh, this particular company insures high-end bikes and you might have a really high-end carbon fiber bike. And, you know, so that we, we don't send you um, information about services that are completely irrelevant to how you live your life. Mm. So that's kind of, so we've, we've built that service, we have that service in place and we use it for some um, reporting behind the scenes. But that's one area where we were thinking of actually tying those together to make that marketplace a smart marketplace. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I can only imagine, you know, after having moved, it would be very useful to be able to, you know, I, for example, I, I moved from somewhere, I had my favorite kind of supermarket or my favorite delicatessen, you said, right? Yeah. Uh, for some food that I loved. And, you know, I've moved and Canopy tells me, well, here's another place like that, that you might love. Or, or, you know, we saw that you use cleaning services at the old place. Here's the options for when you now live, you know? And that could be very useful. And by the way, uh, we do have a question coming in. It's a pretty long one. I'm just going to put it up there and we're just going to deal with it as we go. It's from Marcin Romanchuk. Marcin, thanks for tuning in. Uh, it's an interesting one, it sounds like it. Let me just read it uh, because we might turn this into a podcast later and <laughs> they won't see what's on the screen. Uh, right. How do you assess banks' involvement in open banking? Do they go beyond what is required by regulations like PSD2? If so, what do they offer? Or is it perhaps more the interest of open banking providers than banks? Really curious about your answer here. Yeah, I well, to be fair, I can't really answer this too much because that the the bank's involvement with open banking for whatever whatever level they go to, that's actually handled by or hidden from us by the open banking mm -hmm. provider. So um, I'm not I'm not aware of say somebody like Tink or Plaid or Stripe what they've got in place um, with the banks as far as how they go through the regulations. So unfortunately, I can't actually answer that one. You'd probably need someone who's actually from an open banking provider themselves rather than a, a user of open banking services to answer that question. True, and that sounds like somebody we should have on Tech Leaders Hub FinTech. Yeah, no, it's a really Something good question. I'd really like to know the answer to that one. It was a great question, but unfortunately, I'm not qualified to answer it. Yeah. I, I suppose it's the latter then, Martin. It's more the interest of open banking providers. Uh, would that mm. be fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we move on to uh, to other subjects that might not be uh, that related to fintech, I wanted to ask you from your perspective, dig a little bit deeper, try to find some something more in terms of you know your role as head of engineering. This show is all about you know people in that kind of role. Is there anything else that you know is on your priority list, on your to-do list that you know that you're focusing on? Some areas that really help you, you know, create a great fintech product for, from your perspective, from your kind of role as head of engineering. Yeah, so we we obviously have the the sort of the the app and the offering that the renter sees around the rent passport and the marketplace and the ability to track the rent. 
Um, but whenever you move into a property as a renter, there's a lot of background checks that that get done. There's mm -hmm. employment references. There's um, previous landlord references to be obtained. So um, we have a dedicated ops operations team responsible for doing uh, those. And we have some sort of back-end services that um, we use to try and help optimize them. So one of the key things for me as sort of head of engineering is what technology components, which are either available now or coming up soon that we could start to look into, how would that, how can we use technology to start to streamline the operations process? Mm -hmm. So um, one area that we're looking into is a lot around um, OCR recognition. So right. Rather than allowing, rather, well, rather than waiting for an operations um, agent to read through a full letter from a landlord and try and pick out the 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 sort of the positives or negatives in it, could we run that through an OCR system if it was a letter, say, or a PDF? And then could we pick up, do some sentiment analysis? Was the letter mm -hmm. overall a positive letter or was it a negatively worded letter? What kind of sentiment did that uh, text describe? Did it have certain okay. keywords that um, mean, you know, so whether it's like excellent tenant, tenant. If, if, a, if a letter from a landlord says excellent tenant, it's highly unlikely they're going to be saying, don't let this person rent. Sure. So yeah. that's one bit. So looking at some OCR stuff, taking it forward, you could kind of go down a whole machine learning route. Feed. I was just about to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and, and this is all, these are all items that are on our roadmap. Um, but you know, as a as a sort of small uh, scale up or small startup at that scale point, it's trying to figure it. That this is the other interesting thing as a uh, the interesting kind of balance. How do you focus the immediate need of the business with the future looking part that will actually allow you to be kind of the market leader in that space and trying to balance sort of moving forward the day to day whilst also slowly progressing these kind of larger changes. Um, but yeah. machine learning is one area that we've had started having initial uh, conversations with um, AI ML consultancies around uh, and around just trying to see what what processes can we put in place to to make the whole journey for the renter faster and faster and faster. So okay. that's kind of yeah, that's one area that we're doing. Well, Andy, it's, it sounds like you asked the next question just all by yourself here. I am curious how we would tackle the challenge that you just described, as in balancing the you know the current needs, current challenges with what is potentially possible in the future. Maybe a little bit. I don't know if it's fair to call it R and D, but you know, just looking into the you know the possibilities of the future. Well, how do you do that as head of engineering? Well, I'm kind of lucky. So, and, and we we may kind of cover this as we as we go forward, but. I have, we have, we're kind of structured into three teams. So mm -hmm. two of the teams are very much around building the current business requirements and the business functionality and making sure our system at the moment continues to operate and continues to move forward at a steady pace. And then we have, I kind of have a, a smaller team, which are kind of more around um, sort of what we do in the future that, you know, they're, they're not quite so tied to a regular sprint and a regular delivery of, of work. So we can, so I can use some of my engineers there to look into some of this stuff. But it's just trying to, you've always got to try and carve out a little bit of space in your week as an engineer, as a head of engineering or as a lead engineer or CTO, if you're a small CTO, around creating some time in the calendar to actually think further ahead. It's very, very, and I, I struggle with this. I do. Um, it's very easy to stay in the the day to day minutia, minutia of all the issues yeah. and problems, and you never actually get a chance to look up and and think further ahead. So I do try to kind of block time in my calendar for thinking about the bigger picture and just try to put aside all the day to day issues and concerns, and you know, kind of try and balance it like that. But it's a real juggling act. And it's something I'm still learning at at the moment. True. And, and that's very true that when you're at or near the top of the structure, there isn't somebody that's going to come to you and, you know, push you to innovate. You should be the source of motivation for the for the rest of the team, you know, for the for the other developers to actually think about, OK, but what could we be doing besides the day to day? Right. Yeah. Now, luckily, um, 
luckily for me, I do also have a very um, sort of forward-thinking CEO and uh, CPO chief product officer who awesome. actually do come forward with some really, really interesting ideas, um, both technical and non-technical. So often I can use some of that as a bit of an inspiration as well to, to actually start to investigate some of these things. But yeah, it's uh, blocking out time in my calendar is kind of really about the only way I kind of do it as far as, you know, having a chance to think about it. Uh, otherwise, another thing I do, I listen to a lot of podcasts um, and I try to keep up with a lot of different websites and news articles just to try and see what is what is out there, what is different, what's new, upcoming, mm -hmm. and not just in a fintech space, in a technology space generally or a business space, just to kind of try and be aware and have different sources of information so that I can use that as well in sort of figuring out what our, our tech roadmap should look like. Yeah. And I bet if I was listening to this, I would be kind of trying to figure out or, you know, asking myself, well, are there any particular, you know, websites, podcasts that you would recommend for this? Um, I'm going to struggle for the titles just off the top of my head. But I think what I can do is definitely send you some information over afterwards of like sort of the I keep track of about 20 podcasts. Um, so Excellent. I can send you details of those over and then you could always include them um, wherever you post this. Sure. Uh, I will try and make it a LinkedIn comment under this session and then a YouTube comment and a Facebook comment too, so that people can access that after the session. All right. So let's talk about teams. Let's talk about actually, you know, delivering software, software development capacity and how you structure that. You mentioned you, you know, a little bit about having multiple outsource teams alongside your internal team. So how do you manage all of that? Do you have any specific tactics for managing you know, multiple outsource teams and an internal team? Yeah, so just to give you a little bit of background about how we're structured. So um, we have um, sort of a outsourced offshore relationship with two different uh, consultancies. Um, mm. So we have two squads uh, through one consultancy out in um, sort of Eastern Europe. And then we have another squad in India. So interesting aspect there is the time zone difference because we're in the UK. Um, but time zones are not too bad. It kind of means that everything happens in the morning for us in the yeah. UK. Yeah. So typically, you know, the other squads have already been working for a few hours before we come online at eight o'clock, nine o'clock uh, UK time. So we make sure that we, we, have, a, we have a 10 o'clock UK time daily stand up. So the key leads from those squads join that call. And that's where we talk about any current issues, any, um, any changes that are happening in our various environments, whether it's staging or production or our overall platform changes, just to ensure that out of kind of the, the UK Canopy team and then these two offshore teams, um, everyone's aware of what's happening today. And if there's a release happening, when is it happening? Who's running the release? So we use we use like the daily stand up that typically goes on for about 15 minutes. It's not an it's not an agile stand up as such where everyone goes around the room saying what they're going to work on. Yeah. It's more of a kind of um, status update briefing on what's uh -huh. happening. So we do that. A lot of the meetings are in the morning, um, which for me is a little bit tricky because I'm actually more of a morning doer. And I prefer the meetings in the afternoon because I'm most productive with my thinking in the mornings. Um, sure. But, you know, can't can't affect the time zones and the locations of the team. Sure, sure, um, sure. Another thing we do, so we have uh, the, they all share the same code bases. They are Canopy code bases and they are con both, um, the, the two different geolocated groups are contributing into the same repositories in the code bases. So it's not like there's separate repositories for, for this team and this team. We're all in, in together, which, uh -huh. which can bring challenges with conflicts and merging and understanding of what the code's doing and has sure. caused issues in the past. But we, we've now got a pretty good way of working. We've got a very defined uh, coding development and branch strategy. Mm -hmm. So people know when they should put code in one place, move it to another. We've got a very defined release process as well. Mm -hmm. And we also have, for every code review, we always have at least one person from the other remote team as a reviewer oh. on that. Okay. 
So we're, we, we are trying to kind of make them work together to a point so that they understand mm. how each other codes and what's yeah. happening. And so we use that part. Yeah, and then you can kind of cross-pollinate best practices between the two teams when they're reviewing each other's work. And by yeah. having that one repository, you can keep track of standards, I suppose. Exactly, yeah. We can keep track of standards. We can run um, code analysis tools, code quality tooling against the repositories. Um, and I do use some uh, different tools that we, we might move, uh, move on to. The interesting bit, though, is each, each squad has their own sort of project manager and BA, and then a number of engineers and um, QA engineers. So one thing that I was conscious of when I started at Canopy was not to try and like become the line manager of each engineer, right. but, but to, you know, they are already a, a sort of a, a separate unit. They are already a team. They have a way of working and a way of communicating with each other. Um, there are occasionally slight language barriers or, or sort of um, accent barriers. But sure. the main thing is they have a way of working that works for that consultancy. So yeah. I didn't want to come in and just try and smash that to pieces and install a new way. So yeah. they both the, the two different consultancies do work in a slightly different way from each other. But what we try and make sure is when they come together, when when the points come together, mm -hmm. that's then where we have a kind of canopy standard. So that's yeah, where yeah. we kind of say, this is how you need to work on these parts. Um, because what I was really conscious of is I didn't want to be micromanaging what's about 15 engineers, um, five QA engineers. You know, I, I don't need to be micromanaging an additional 20, sure. 25 people. Um, they know how to work. They know how to build code. That's why we've got a commercial relationship with them. So right, right, exactly. leave them to build in the way in which they build. But I, we can have engineering oversight, architectural oversight, and then we can put processes in place around where they meet. So around the code tooling and around deployment practices, branching strategies, that kind of stuff. Okay. All right. Before we move on, do you, would you identify like one particular element of this that is bringing you like the biggest return on investment is the most pivotal part the daily stand-up is it using the single repository what would you indicate as kind of the most important thing here i think it's the daily stand-up yeah yeah when um when people when especially over the summer holidays when quite a lot of people were off um you know obviously from our own team and then from the remote teams as well um occasionally issues cropped up because the information hadn't been shared across to the rest of the remote teams. So just to clarify, when I have the stand-up, it's not with all the engineers and yeah. all the people from the consultancies. It's the lead engineers. So when yeah. they weren't present because they were on holiday, and if they hadn't put a uh, like a stand-in, mm -hmm. um, then some communication broke down at that point. So yeah. it's that communication part. But what we have found is by by having that tight, regular every single day, 10 o'clock meeting. Um, and by, I, I try to kind of kick it off with a little bit of a bit of chat, whether it's about the weather, someone's sure. Zoom backdrop, whatever, just to try and lighten the mood a little bit so that people will then be a little bit more open in um, sharing. And if there is a problem, more, more open in actually sharing that with what is quite a large group. And, mm, you know, mm. you've got to try and remember they're, they're, a, they're an external agency who are being paid by us to build things. So do they want to share bad news with us? Probably not, but we need them to so that we can make good choices. So I've tried to kind of tried my best to make it as sort of a safe space and a friendly space so that they can share bad news and they're not going to become sort of berated by it or upset. And we can then figure out what's the right way of solving that problem. And I think mm -hmm. that stand-up is is probably the key one. And I know it always comes back to, oh, that the answer is people. <laughs> it's not the tools, it's not the code, it's people, but it is, it's definitely yeah. around the people and the coordination for, for me. Yeah. And then, you know, on the one hand, it's people. Somebody once told me, you know, process before people, before tools. I suppose the daily stand-up is the process that allows you to get more in touch with the people here. I agree one hundred percent with what you said. 
even from my experience in the kind of adjacent category as, as, as content, you need to create the space to share bad news and it should not be hidden because otherwise the problems just keep mounting. Yeah. Uh, right. So off the topics that we wanted to cover today, I have one more that I think we'll be able to cover. For anybody who is either in a startup that's starting to grow and scale, you know, before we went on air, we were talking a little bit about what to do after this stage of iterate and learn and pivot. Once you've found your thing, how do you then enter the next phase of growth and how do you kind of start scaling from there? There's a lot of, you know, content, there's a lot of advice for beginners, for people in that initial stage. But dot, 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 we do actually have a question coming in. So I'm going to okay. read, read that. And it's a question from Scott Pretty, known friend of STX Next. Hello, Scott. Thanks for joining us. Uh, and the question is, right before we get into what I was kind of building up to, do your contractors take advantage of agile sprint retrospectives to review those same potentially difficult discussions? Let's dive into that. Yeah, that's a really good question. Thank you. Um, so yes, we do. We do. Um, we, we run in two week sprints, and we actually run them sort of offset. So when one team finishes a sprint, the other one's halfway through. So we deploy mm -hmm. weekly, but we're on two week sprints. If that makes sense. I see. I see. Um, but yes, they they run. They do run their own retrospectives. I have attended some of them, and what I really liked as well is when I did attend them. And obviously, I must be quite scary when I attend a retrospective being run by a consultancy. Um, I don't try to be scary, but, you know, I think the title scares people. Um, they were still very open and honest about what had gone well in that sprint and what hadn't gone so well and what they needed to improve on. And I don't attend all of them because I know as a, as a sort of leader that my presence will affect what people talk about and what they'll share. But for the ones that I have attended, yeah, they 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 get some really good insight out of it. And um, I mean, I've been at Canopy now for just over six months, and probably within the first three months, there was just a, there was just a massive change in how things were happening. And now, over six months, uh, things are very very stable in the design process. But yes, they do do um, sprint retrospectives, but they do them in their own agency group. So we don't kind of do like a big retrospective as such. We kind of leave them to to run their own, and then I join every now and again. To listen to some of the feedback because sometimes and, and there are also sometimes you know occasional issues with um the teams working together or not working together so well so i need to know those points so that i can then figure out well what do we put in place to enable better collaboration and communication between those teams as well excellent yeah, excellent question. thank you Thank you for that answer, Scott. I hope that answers your question. Go ahead and give us a follow-up if you'd like to dive more into that. And we'll just spend a little bit more of the time that we have uh, going into what, what I was uh, talking a little bit about before. So uh, we're past the iterate and learn and pivot phase of growth. We're past that you know early startup stage of growth. And now we're scaling. How do you manage that? How do you shift gears here as an engineering manager, as a head of engineering in your case? Yeah, so we're there's kind of I see kind of two there's two parts to when you kind of get to the point of scaling. So you know, obviously, you as a startup, you're trying to find the right market fit. You're altering your product to fit that market as you iterate and learn and pivot. We're kind of at a point now where we know that our product works, and we have a solid backend system for the operations team to use. We have a great uh, platform for the letting agents to use and we have a great product for the renters so right we have a proven product we now need to scale we need numbers we need revenue we need you know all the magic metrics the hockey stick graphs and all that mm -hmm. so we're at that scale up point now i see this kind of two thing two parts that scale up sometimes you will be at that point and you receive a significant investment you know 20 30 50 100 million and that might then be that at that point you also need to massively scale your team as well because you're you know going for really high growth and you really need to scale up the number of people. Or in our case, what we've received is more of a kind of a you know sort of that seed round. We're not at Series A yet, so we've received sort of almost like a sort of top up investment, which gives us a chunk more runway, but it doesn't give us enough to start doubling, trebling, quadrupling the team size. So my challenge and, and the interesting bit 
that the interesting work for me now is let's take the engineering resources that helped us iterate and learn on that product. How do we now turn them into making the product stable, performant, scalable? Um, so um, I did get to, you know, we, we've kind of grown our QA team slightly and we've now built our own non-functional testing or NFT environment to do performance testing. And we're now doing large scale performance testing to find out where, where are the bottlenecks in our platform so we can find them ahead of scale, fix them now, and then move forward. And it's trying to now change the mindset for some of the engineers around stability, code quality, performance yeah. and optimizations at that point and trying to take the existing team that we have and just change its focus slightly. So we still yeah. have obviously aspects of iterate and learn, you know, we're not, we haven't got our head sort of in the clouds and we think we're brilliant and there's nothing to improve, but we now need to start to take some of that engineering resource to make the platform a scalable solid platform because we now have a significant number of renters and agents using our platform. So right. if any aspect of it starts to degrade in performance or, you know, uh, fingers crossed, this doesn't happen, but we end up with an outage, we won't be disturbing or interrupting two or three people trialing us when we were a tiny startup. True. We'll be causing a problem for a lot of people. So we now need to, we now need to be proactive in solving these problems before they happen. Right. And that's kind yeah. of, and that for me is quite, I mean, that's, some of my sort of some of the stuff that I've worked on at larger companies and putting things in place at larger organizations now helps me in this role because I've done okay. some of that before and I've, I've put things in place before and worked in environments that had various uh, guidelines and guardrails against things. And I can now bring that knowledge to Canopy to help us make sure that we're solid and stable going forward. Okay, that make it, makes me curious. What are those things specifically that you're bringing in from past experience that are now focusing, helping you focus on, you know, more quality, a better user experience from the technical side for your users? Yeah, so I mean, if, if you kind of wind it back to the development phase, it's sort of making sure we are doing good quality code reviews, uh -huh. that people are reviewing code, not just saying it's fine, throwing it out there. Um, yeah. We've got, we've got a number of development environments, so we can test different uh, aspects on there. Then we've got our staging environment. We also now have our NFT performance testing environment, and we've got a dedicated person for that. We're building out a lot more automated tests, where a lot of it originally would have been more manual exploratory testing. Sure. We're building out a lot more automation packs. So as the code is going through the various code pipelines and through the various build systems, we're building more and more confidence that that code is actually fine. Um, and one of the things mm. for me, and I was a massive, I am a massive fan of test-driven development or TDD and yeah. around unit testing and integration testing. It's bringing that into our pipelines to automate it so that every single time we add another test to those pipelines, we're improving our confidence in our code every single time. So building better quality code, one aspect, get those engineering practices, even if we slow down slightly in development, yeah, that's fine. We're, we're already moving at a really fast pace. So if we slow down slightly, it's okay. And I've seen how slowly some other companies work. So, you know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're pretty good uh, on the actual kind of um, sort of accelerate metrics as far as deployment frequency and things. So we yeah. can, we've got a little bit of room where we can just slow down a bit, make sure it's quality. And then the other aspect is around um, putting good um, monitoring and alerting in place. So, you know, we're, we're fleshing out, um, we're adding a lot more monitors to, to various parts of the system. So we get early warning before it actually starts to affect anybody. So let's, let's take, for example, the database started to be consumed by some really horrible, ugly queries. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get alerts way before it hits the ceiling limit of the database mm -hmm. so that we can actually start to put something in place before it becomes service affecting. And by putting that kind of monitoring and alerting in place and some of those guardrails around it, that's kind of one of the things that, you know, we didn't really have in place before I started and we do have there now. 
is to actually you know make us a product you know a proper sort of small business types you know small to medium business type system something that's got all the right parts in it yeah um, another aspect which which they did do already was around security regular mm-hmm. pen penetration testing and you know security audit security reviews mm-hmm. and all the kind of boring paperwork stuff but actually it's really important especially yeah. around you know a fintech product with users data it's extremely important that security is considered you know at all aspects um, and yeah. they were doing a good job before and i'm just helping carry that on exactly right that, okay that is a lot to chew into we don't have quite a lot of time left in this session and Instead of following up, I'm going to respect our watchers and listeners because we do have a question coming in and that is always the number one priority. Actually, there's only one priority I read sometime. There aren't priorities, there's just priorities. So the priority is this question coming in from Sergey, and which I'm going to read and I wonder about your answer and then we'll have time for a maximum of one more question and then uh, announcements for the audience and we'll have to say goodbye, Sally. So for this question, Sergey is asking, what do you find the most scary, I assume, or challenging in one, your daily work on this position and two, for the product in the near future? I wonder what you're going to say. Okay, so challenging wise, and I think pretty much anyone working in a startup will, will agree with this. It's there are so many things to do. Your to-do list will always be absolutely enormous and you'll never yeah. finish it. Uh, you'll never conclude it. It's trying to figure out what is or are the most important things to deal with that day. Because there will always be a number of really important things. So, you know, is it a response to some kind of compliance question? Is it uh, figuring out what happened um, when when one of the one of the alerts went off? You know, and trying to figure out what's the most important thing, but then also, am I the right person to do that, or should I be delegating that to one of my team? And trying to figure out, actually, I'm not the right. I might be saying that knowing what happened around that alert and that spike in traffic, I want to know what happened, but I'm not the right person to do that. Somebody else needs to do that so that I can do mm-hmm. more effective things. But yeah, it's trying to that that juggle that constant, um, constant to do list which normally involves tiny down in the weeds type tasks as well as oh by the way you also need to update the product the, the tech roadmap for the next 18 months and kind of that kind of real you know thinking like a CTO and then thinking like an engineer and kind of everywhere in between so that's what i find most challenging about the uh, daily work for the challenging for the product in the near future i think the key thing is just you know we we're testing it out at the moment as far as performance testing. I kind of, everything's looking good, but I just fear that there's just going to be something around the corner that, you know, will be a real moment where we have to sit down, properly scratch our heads and try and solve it. Um, I'm hoping that's not going to be the case, but I'm pretty sure there will be something that we need to, you know, let's make sure we can catch that be- way before it uh, it ends up anywhere else. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much it really. You know, um, we've got a really good, um, really good product design, product focus, commercial focus. So, you know, from my point of view, it, I, I really get a chance to purely focus on the engineering side and, and on the engineering okay. challenges. All right. Yeah. Thank you for the answer, Andy. Thank you for the question, Sergey. Now we're at a bit of a crossroads. I do have one more question, but do you have a little bit of extra time to answer it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I do. If you do. Okay, I do, <laughs> of course. <laughs> no problem at all. Okay, so this one is from Marcin. It's going to be the last one. And thank you, everyone, for being so active on this session. Uh, the question is around hypothesis testing. And specifically, it's uh, what is the role of hypothesis testing in your process? Um, could you clarify? Hypo- well, okay, so hypothesis testing, or I just need a little bit of clarification. You think you're talking about more around sort of experimentation in that question? I would assume so. Uh, just on a technical note, it's going to take a little while for Machin to yeah. answer your question because there's a little bit of a delay, and then he might clarify that. We'll see if we get some sort of clarification here, and otherwise, uh, we'll be just uh, gearing up to finish this session. <laughs> yeah. 
the outcomes of study may lead to rejection and are significant. Yeah. To be honest, again, I've not I've, I've not done a, a great deal around this part. I mean, it's uh, I'm just trying to see. I've, I'm not really kind of I probably know what it is, but I've not really come across the term particularly. Okay, so much answer yeah. was just a yes. So I assume your understanding was correct. So with that in mind, would you have something to say to this question? Yeah, sure. So what we've we've kind of done a little bit of experimentation. So we we're at that point, obviously, where we've kind of we've done experimentation just by going, oh, that didn't, you know, ignore at a product level of, oh, that that didn't work. What can we do differently? Rather than more like proper A B testing or A B N testing. So we are mm -hmm. actually um, in the process of pulling in an actual experimentation platform as such or experimentation library so that we can do more um, A-B testing with the product. We do um, proper A-B testing around some of the marketing messages that we send through and some of mm -hmm. the system-generated emails and notifications. The platform that we use for that can, can allows us to do sort of, you know, 50% get one type of message, 50% get another, and it measures the results. Um, from an application point of view, we haven't got anything particularly in place, but we're, we're putting that in so that we can do more on that side. But yeah, I think so. I think up until now, it's been a little bit more ad hoc and sort of based on hunches. And then if it didn't pay off, how can we change it? And what okay. do we try next? Okay. I hope well, that answered the question, but I feel like it was a bit of a, a poor answer, to be fair. <laughs> I wouldn't worry about that too much. And, you know, Martin, I think it's fair to say you can reach out to Andy for. Uh, more context or to continue the conversation. I just wanted to add that it makes a lot of sense. We mentioned at the beginning of this session, which is just now nearing its completion, sadly, uh, that you know communication is so important. How you speak to people with regards to their delicate financial data is so important. So A-B testing those messages, it makes perfect sense to, yeah. to do that. All right, uh, we're just past the one hour mark. Once again, I find myself just getting into uh, into things, but uh, you know, we have some pretty busy people here on Tech Leaders Hub. So we do just one hour sessions for now. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Andy, uh, is there anything that you want to kind of put out into the world for our audience, anywhere they should go or click or pay attention to or follow you? Uh, where would you direct people? Um, well, I think if you just bring it back to that first point, you know, building a personal brand, I think is really key. There's loads of stuff out there around building a brand, uh, building your own brand. What does it mean? Um, in fact, I did do a, uh, a webinar similar to this one with, um, with uh, an ex-colleague of mine, Ben Cadell, who runs a YouTube channel on all things um, IT and programming, um, which was actually hosted by Parol Singh of Manhattan Partners. Um, and I think I've got some links to it in my LinkedIn profile. So if you if you find me on LinkedIn, I'm Andrew Beacock, and my um, LinkedIn sort of shorthand is just a Beacock. If you find me on there in my profile, there's some links to other webinars that I've done, and one of them is around the personal brand. Um, but I think yeah, the key thing really I think is just it really helps in recruitment and retention, and you know being being invited to do stuff like this. You found me from LinkedIn, right? That is true. That is true. Uh, yeah, you're, you're easy you know, to find. I, I love doing this kind of thing. Yeah, I'm really glad we had a chance to do that. So everyone get in there and follow Andrew on LinkedIn. Easy to find because you do have that little computer screen in front of your name. That's how I know your, your messages always stand out or whatever you do there always. <laughs> well, there's another uh, little tip. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also if somebody's sending you like automated LinkedIn campaigns and they take the first part of your name, you know it's automated because they just send you, hey, computer screen. Yeah, <laughs> Here's something exactly. I got for you. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I've heard of that use. So that's something that you know some marketers might find as a, as a bit of a pitfall, uh, but definitely somebody in your kind of role, you know, helps filter out uh, some of the spam or the automated messages. All right, thank you, Andrew, so much for being on our session. Uh, just two words about STX Next for the people tuning in who might not have heard about us. We're actually, incidentally, also a company to which you can outsource your development work. We're a software development company. And you know we have a particular niche, which is Python and JavaScript. Within that particular niche, uh, we're Europe's largest. And we like to think we're Europe's best. But that's for anyone watching or listening who wants to build a digital product to find out if you reach out to us at stxnext.com. We have a roster and a knowledge base of uh, designers, developers, DevOps engineers. We have MLAI, too. 
and a bunch of other services that can help you just build a digital product end-to-end, -end, from idea all the way to execution, maintenance, and scaling. We can help you do that. So if you've never heard about us, follow us on, on LinkedIn, most primarily because that's where we are the most. You can follow us on YouTube, subscribe. If you like Tech Leaders Hub, go ahead and look us up on Google. You'll find us on stxnext.com too. There's a form there where you can apply to be a guest, actually, if you'd be interested in that, or you can reach out to me directly. <laughs> I'm Jakub Greiser on, uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, there's a Tech Leaders Hub group on Facebook too, which you can join. Please go ahead and join. We're spinning up discussions there. It's still kind of ramping up, but it's getting there. Uh, so that's the things that I wanted to mention here. And just once again, thank you, Andy, for being uh, a guest on our session. Thank you, especially to everyone who came in with questions for this session. This, I feel like it was a very you know, fruitful and dynamic one. And was there anything else that you wanted to say just at the very end before I click the end broadcast button there? Just thank you to everybody who did uh, who did attend or is watching this afterwards. Uh, really appreciate it, and uh, thank you, Kuba, for inviting me on. I've had, a, I've had an excellent afternoon. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it was a blast. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and don't forget to not miss the next episode of Tech Leaders Hub or Tech Leaders Hub FinTech. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tech Leaders Hub. If you want more advice that will make you a better technical leader. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening right now. Tech Leaders Hub sessions are usually streamed live, giving you the opportunity to get answers to your burning questions directly from our guests. To take part in Tech Leaders Hub Live, follow STX Next on LinkedIn and subscribe to our channel on YouTube. That's STXNEXT. Last but not least, we invite you to join our community and continue the discussion on Facebook. Just search for Tech Leaders Hub and you'll find our dedicated Facebook group. Once again, thanks for listening. Really glad you could join us. Hope we'll see you in the next one.